Hello, you are listening to the First Person Drunk Podcast. Today what we have for you is the short story Lull by Kelly Link. It is brought to you by me, Miles Tabor, by Creative Commons, and by Tequila. This is Kelly Link's short story Lull, Part 3. It gets better. The man's name is Ed. It isn't his real name. I made it up. Ed and Susan have been married for ten years, separated for five months, back together again for three months. They've been sleeping in the same bed for three months, but they don't have sex. Susan cries whenever Ed kisses her. They don't have any kids. Susan used to have a younger brother. Ed is thinking about getting a dog. While Ed's been at his conference, Susan has been doing some housework. She's done some work up in the attic, which we won't talk about. Not yet. Down in the spare bathroom in the basement, she's set up this machine, which we get around to later, and this machine makes Susan's. What Susan was hoping for was a machine that would bring back Andrew, her brother, but you knew that. Only it turns out that getting Andrew back requires a different machine, a bigger machine. Susan needs help making that machine, and so the new Susans are going to come in handy after all. Over the course of the next few days, the Susans explain all this to Ed. Susan doesn't expect Ed will be very helpful. Hi, Ed, the older, greenish Susan says. She gets up from her chair and gives him a big hug. Her skin is warm, tacky. She smells yeasty. The original Susan, the Susan Ed thinks is original, and I have no idea if he's right about this, and later on, he isn't so sure either sits in her chair and watches them. Big green Susan. Am I making her sound like Godzilla? She doesn't, she doesn't look like Godzilla, and yet there's something about her that reminds Ed of Godzilla. The way she stomps across the kitchen floor, leads Ed over to a chair and makes him sit down. Now he realizes that the kitchen table is gone. He still hasn't managed to say a word. Susan, both of them, is used to this. First of all, Susan says, the attic is off limits. There are some people working up there. I don't mean Susan's. I'll explain Susan's in a minute. Some visitors. They're helping me with a project. About the other Susan's. There are five of me at the moment. You'll meet the other three later. They're down in the basement. You're allowed in the basement. You can help down there if you want. Godzilla, Susan says, you don't have to worry about who is who, although none of us are exactly alike. You can call us all Susan. We're discovering that some of us may be more temporary than others, or fatter, or younger, or greener. 
It seems to depend on the batch. Are you Susan? Ed says. He corrects himself. I mean, are you my wife? The real Susan? We're all your wife, the younger Susan says. She puts her hand on his leg and pats him like a dog. Where did the kitchen table go? Ed says. I put it in the attic, Susan says. You really don't have to worry about that now. How was your conference? Another Susan comes into the kitchen. She's young and the color of green apples or new grass. Even the whites of her eyes are grassy. She's maybe nineteen, and the color of her skin makes Ed think of a snake. Ed, she says, how was the conference? They're keen on the new game, Ed says. It tests real well. Want a beer, Susan says. It doesn't matter which Susan says this. She picks up a pitcher of green, foamy stuff and pours it into a glass. This is beer, Ed says. It's Susan beer, Susan says, and all the Susans laugh. The beautiful, snake-colored, nineteen-year-old Susan takes Ed on a tour of the house. Mostly, Ed just looks at Susan, but he sees that the television is gone, and so are all of his games, all his notebooks. The living room sofa is still there, but all the seat cushions are missing. Later on, Susan will disassemble the sofa with an axe. Susan has covered up all the downstairs windows with what looks like sheets of aluminum foil. She shows him the bathtub downstairs, where one of the Susans is brewing the Susan beer. Other Susans are hanging long, mossy clots of the Susan beer on laundry racks. Dry, these clots can be shaped into bedding, nests for the new Susans. They are also edible. Ed is still holding the glass of Susan beer. Go on, Susan says. You like beer. I don't like green beer, Ed says. You like Susan, though, Susan says. She's wearing one of his t-shirts and a pair of Susan's underwear. No bra. She puts Ed's hand on her breast. Susan stops stirring the beer. She's taller than Ed and only a little bit green. You know, Susan loves you, she says. Who's up in the attic? Ed says. Is it Andrew? His hand is still on Susan's breast. He can feel her heart beating. Susan says, You can't tell, Susan, I told you. She doesn't think you're ready. It's the aliens. They both stare at him. She finally got them on the phone. This is going to be huge, Ed. This is going to change the world. Ed could leave the house. He could leave Susan. 
he could refuse to drink the beer. The Susan beer doesn't make him drunk. It isn't really beer. You knew that, right? There are Susans everywhere. Some of them want to talk to Ed about their marriage, or about the aliens, or sometimes they want to talk about Andrew. Some of them are busy working. The Susans are always dragging Ed off to empty rooms to talk or kiss or make love or gossip about the other Susans. Or they're ignoring him. There's one very young Susan. She looks like she might be six or seven years old. She goes up and down the upstairs hallway, drawing on the walls with a marker. Ed isn't sure whether this is childish vandalism or important Susan work. He feels awkward asking. Every once in a while, he thinks he sees the real Susan. He wishes he could sit down and talk with her, but she always looks so busy. By the end of the week, there aren't any mirrors left in the house, and the windows are all covered up. The Susans have hung sheets of the Susan beer over all the light fixtures, so everything is green. Ed isn't sure, but he thinks he might be turning green. Susan tastes green. She always does. Once, Ed hears someone knocking on the front door. Ignore that, Susan says as she walks past him. She's carrying the stacked blades of an old ceiling fan and a string of Christmas lights. It isn't important. Ed pulls the plug of aluminum foil out of the eye hole and peeks out. Stan is standing there, looking patient. They stand there, Ed on one side of the door and Stan on the other. Ed doesn't open the door, and eventually Stan goes away. All the peacocks are kicking up a fuss. Ed tries teaching some of the Susans to play poker. It doesn't work so well, because it turns out that Susan always knows what cards the other Susans are holding. So Ed makes up a game where that doesn't matter so much. But in the end, it makes him feel too lonely. There aren't any other Eds. They decide to play spin the bottle instead. Instead of a bottle, they use a hammer, and it never ends up pointing at Ed. After a while, it gets too strange watching Susan kiss Susans, and he wanders off to look for a Susan who will kiss him. Up in the second-story bedroom, there are always lots of Susans. This is where they go to wait when they start to get ripe. The Susans loll, curled in their nests, getting riper, 
arguing about the end of some old story. None of them remember it the same way. Some of them don't seem to know anything about it, but they all have opinions. Ed climbs into a nest and leans back. Susan swings her legs over to make room for him. This Susan is small and round. She tickles the soft part of his arm and then tucks her face into his side. Susan passes him a glass of Susan beer. That's not it, Susan says. It turns out that he overdosed, maybe even did it on purpose. We couldn't talk about it. There weren't enough of us. We were trying to carry all that sadness all by ourselves. You can't do something like that. And then the wife tries to kill him. I tried to kill him. She kicks the fuck out of him. He can't leave the house for a week. Won't even come to the door when his friends come over. If you can call them friends, Susan says. No, there was a gun, Susan says, and she has an affair. Because she can't get over it. Neither of them can. She humiliates him at a dinner party, Susan says. They both drink too much. Everybody goes home, and she breaks all the dishes instead of washing them. There are plate shards all over the kitchen floor. Someone's going to get hurt. They don't have a time machine. They can't go back and unbreak those plates. We know that they still loved each other, but that doesn't matter anymore. Then the police showed up. Well, that's not the way I remember it, Susan says, but I guess it could have happened that way. Ed and Susan used to buy books all the time. They had so many books, they used to joke about wanting to be quarantined or snowed in. Maybe then they'd manage to read all the books. But the books have all gone up to the attic, along with the lamps and the coffee tables and their bicycles and all Susan's paintings. Ed has watched the Susans carry up paperback books, silverware, old board games, and holy underwear, even a kazoo, the Encyclopedia Britannica, the goldfish and the goldfish bowl and the little canister of goldfish food. The Susans have gone through the house, taking everything they could. After all the books were gone, they dismantled the bookshelves. Now they're tearing off the wallpaper in long strips. The aliens seem to like books. They like everything, especially Susan. Eventually, when the Susans are ripe, they go up in the attic too. The aliens swap things, the books and the Susans and the coffee mugs for other things, machines that the Susans are assembling. 
Ed would like to get his hands on one of those devices, but Susan says no. He isn't even allowed to help, except with the Susan beer. The thing that the Susans are building takes up most of the living room. Ed's office, the kitchen, the laundry room. The Susans don't bother with laundry. The washer and the dryer are both gone, and the Susans have given up wearing clothes altogether. Ed has managed to keep a pair of shorts and a pair of jeans. He's wearing the shorts right now, and he folds the jeans up into a pillow and rests his head on top of them so that Susan can't steal them. All his other clothes have been carried up to the attic, and it's creeping up the stairs, spilling over into the second story. The house is shiny with alien machines. Teams of naked Susans are hard at work all day long, testing instruments, hammering and stitching their machine together, polishing and dusting and stacking alien things on top of each other. If you're wondering what the machine looks like, picture a science fair project involving a lot of aluminum foil. Improvised, homely, makeshift, and just a little dangerous looking. None of the Susans is quite sure what the machine will eventually do. Right now, it grows Susan beer. When the beer is stirred, left alone, stirred some more, it clots and makes more Susans. Ed likes watching this part. The house is more and more full of shy, loud, quiet, talkative, angry, happy, greenish Susans of all sizes, all ages, who work at disassembling the house piece by piece, and, piece by piece, assembling the machine. It might be a time machine, or a machine to raise the dead, or maybe the house is becoming a spaceship, slowly, one room at a time. Susan says the aliens don't make these kinds of distinctions. It may be an invasion factory, Ed says, or a doomsday machine. Susan says that they aren't that kind of aliens. Ed's job, stirring the Susan beer with a long, flat plank, a floorboard Susan pried up, and skimming the foam, which has a stringy and unpleasantly cheese-like consistency, into buckets. He carries the buckets downstairs and makes Susan Beer Souffle and Susan Beer Casserole, Susan Beer Surprise, Upside Down Susan Cake. It all tastes the same, and he grows to like the taste. The beer doesn't make him drunk. That isn't what it's for. I can't tell you what it's for, but when he's drinking it, he isn't sad. He has the beer, and the work in the kitchen, and the ripe, 
green fuckery. Everything tastes like Susan. The only thing he misses is poker nights. Up in the spare bedroom, Ed falls asleep listening to the Susans talk, and when he wakes up, his jeans are gone and he's naked. The room is empty. All the ripe Susans have gone up to the attic. When he steps out into the hall, the little Susan is out there, drawing on the walls. She puts her marker down and hands him a pitcher of Susan beer. She pinches his leg and says, You're getting nice and ripe. Then she winks at Ed and runs down the hall. He looks at what she's been drawing. Andrew. Scribbly crayon portraits of Andrew, all up and down the walls. He follows the pictures of Andrew down the hall, all the way to the master bedroom where he and the original Susan used to sleep. Now he sleeps anywhere, with any Susan. He hasn't been in their room in a while, although he's noticed the Susans going in and out with boxes full of things. The Susans are always shooing at him when he gets in their way. The bedroom is full of Andrew. There are Susan's portraits of Andrew on the walls, the ones from her art class. Ed had forgotten how unpleasant and peculiar these paintings are. In one, the largest one, Andrew, life-sized, has his hands around a small animal, maybe a ferret. He seems to be strangling it. The ferret's mouth is cocked open, showing all its teeth. A picture like that, Ed thinks, you ought to turn it towards the wall at night. Susan's put Andrew's bed in here, and Andrew's books, and Andrew's desk. Andrew's clothes have been hung up in the closet. There isn't an alien machine in the room, or, for that matter, anything that ever belonged to Ed. Ed puts a pair of Andrew's pants on and lies down on Andrew's bed just for a minute, and he closes his eyes. When he wakes up, Susan is sitting on the bed. He can smell her, that ripe green scent. He can smell that smell on himself. Susan says, If you're ready, I thought we could go up to the attic together. What's going on here? Ed says. I thought you needed everything. Shouldn't all this stuff go up to the attic? This is Andrew's room. For when he comes back, Susan says, we thought it would make him feel comfortable having his own bed to sleep in. He might need his stuff. What if the aliens need his stuff, Ed says. What if they can't make you a new Andrew yet because they don't know enough about him? That's not how it works, 
Susan says. We're getting close now. Can't you feel it? I feel weird, Ed says. Something's happening to me. You're ripe, Ed, Susan says. Isn't that fantastic? We weren't sure you'd ever get ripe enough. She takes his hand and pulls him up. Sometimes he forgets how strong she is. So what happens now? Ed says. Am I going to die? I don't feel sick. I feel good. What happens when we get ripe? The afternoon light makes Susan look older. Or maybe she just is older. He likes this part. Seeing what Susan looked like as a kid. What she'll look like as an old lady. It's as if they got to spend their whole lives together. I never know, she says. Let's go find out. Take off Andrew's pants, and I'll hang them back up in the closet. They leave the bedroom and walk down the hall. The Andrew drawings, the knobs and dials and stacked shiny machinery watch them go. There aren't any other Susans around at the moment. They're all busy downstairs. He can hear them hammering away. For a minute, it's the way it used to be, only better. Just Ed and Susan in their own house. Ed holds on tight. To Susan's hand. When Susan opens the attic door, the attic is full of stars. Stars and stars and stars. Ed has never seen so many stars. Susan has taken the roof off. Off in the distance, they can smell the apple trees way down in the orchard. Susan sits down cross-legged on the floor, and Ed sits down beside her. She says, I wish you'd tell me a story. Ed says, What kind of story? Susan says, A bedtime story? When Andrew was a kid, we used to read this book. I remember this one story about people who go under a hill. They spend one night down there, eating and drinking and dancing. But when they come out, a hundred years have gone by. Do you know how long it's been since Andrew died? I've lost track. I don't know stories like that. Ed says. He picks at his flaky green skin and wonders what he tastes like. What do you think the aliens look like? Do you think they look like giraffes? Like marbles? Like Andrew? Do you think they have mouths? Don't be silly, Susan says. They look like us. How do you know? Ed says. Have you been up here before? No, 
Susan says, but Susan has. We could play a card game, Ed says, or I spy. You could tell me about the first time I met you, Susan says. I don't want to talk about that, Ed says. That's all gone. Okay, fine. Susan sits up straight, arches her back, runs her green tongue across her green lips. She winks at Ed and says, Tell me how beautiful I am. You're beautiful. Ed says, I've always thought you were beautiful. All of you. How about me? Am I beautiful? Don't be that way, Susan says. She slouches back against him. Her skin is warm and greasy. The aliens are going to get here soon. I don't know what happens after that, but I hate this part. I always hate this part. I don't like waiting. Do you think this is what it was like for Andrew when he was in rehab? When you get him back, ask him. Why ask me? Susan doesn't say anything for a bit. Then she says, we think we'll be able to make you, too. We're starting to figure out how it works. Eventually, it will be you and me and him, just the way it was before. Only we'll fix him the way we've fixed me. He won't be so sad. Have you noticed how I'm not sad anymore? Don't you want that? Not to be sad. And maybe after that, we'll try making some more people. We'll start all over again. We'll do everything right this time. Ed says, so why are they helping you? I don't know, Susan says. Either they think we're funny or else they think we're pathetic the way we get stuck. We can ask them when they get here. She stands up, stretches, yawns, sits back down on Ed's lap, reaches down, stuffs his penis half erect inside of her, just like that. Ed groans. He says, Susan... Susan says, tell me a story. She squirms, any story. I don't care what. I can't tell you a story, Ed says. I don't know any stories when you're doing this. I'll stop, Susan says. She stops. Ed says, don't stop. Okay. He puts his hands around her waist and moves her, as if he's stirring the Susan beer. He says, Once upon a time, he's speaking very fast. They're running out of time.
Once, while they were making love, Andrew came into the bedroom. He didn't even knock. He didn't seem to be embarrassed at all. Ed doesn't want to be fucking Susan when the aliens show up. On the other hand, Ed wants to be fucking Susan forever. He doesn't want to stop, not for Andrew or the aliens or even for the end of the world. Ed says, there was a man and a woman and they fell in love. They were both nice people. They made a good couple. Everybody liked them. This story is about the woman. This story is about a woman who is in love with someone who invents a time machine. He's planning to go so far into the future that he'll end up right back at the very beginning. He asks her to come along, but she doesn't want to go. What's back at the beginning of the world? Little blobs of life swimming around in a big blob? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? She doesn't want to play Adam and Eve. She has other things to do. She works for a research company. She calls people on the telephone and asks them them all sorts of questions. Back at the beginning, there aren't going to be phones. She doesn't like the sound of it, so her husband says, fine, then here's what we'll do. I'll build you another machine, and if you ever decide that you miss me, or you're tired and you can't go on, climb inside this machine, this box right here, and push this button, and go to sleep. And you'll sleep all the way forwards and backwards to me, where I'm waiting for you. I'll keep on waiting for you. I love you. And so they make love, and they make love a few more times, and then he climbs into his time machine, and whoosh, he's gone like that. So fast, it's hard to believe that he was ever there at all. Meanwhile, she lives her life forward, slow, the way he didn't want to. She gets married again, and makes love some more, and has kids, and they have kids, and when she's an old woman, she's finally ready, she climbs into the dusty box, down in the secret room, under the orchard, and she pushes the button, and falls asleep. And she sleeps all the way back, just like Sleeping Beauty, down in the orchard for years and years, which fly by like seconds. She goes flying back, past the men sitting around the green felt table. Now you can see them, and now they're gone again, and all the peacocks are screaming. And the Satanist drives up to the house and unloads the truckload of furniture. He unpaints the pentagrams. Soon, the old shy man will unbuild his house, carry his secret away on his back, and the apples are back on the orchard trees again, and then the trees are all blossoming, and now the woman is getting younger, just a little. The lines around her mouth are smoothing out. She dreams that someone has come down into that underground room and is looking down at her in her time machine. He stands there for a long time. She can't open her eyes. Her eyelids are so heavy. She doesn't want to wake up just yet. She dreams She's on a train, going down the tracks backwards, and behind the train, someone is picking up the beams and the nails and the girders to put in a box, and then they'll put the box away. The trees are whizzing past, getting smaller and smaller, and then they're all gone too. Now she's a kid again. Now she's a baby. Now she's much smaller, and then she's even smaller than that. She gets her gills back. She doesn't want to wake up just yet.
She wants to get right back to the very beginning, where it's all new and clean, and everything is still and green and flat and sleepy, and everybody has crawled back into the sea, and they're waiting for her to get back there too, and then the party can start. She goes backwards and 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 backwards. The cheerleader says to the devil, We're out of time. We're holding things up. Don't you hear them banging on the door? The devil says, you didn't finish the story. The cheerleader says, And you never let me touch your tail. Besides, there isn't any ending. I could make up something, but it wouldn't ever satisfy you. You said that yourself. You're never satisfied. And I have to get on with my life. My parents are going to be home soon. She stands up and slips out of the closet and slams the door shut again, so fast the devil can hardly believe it. A key turns in a lock. The devil tries the doorknob, and someone standing outside the closet giggles. Shush, says the cheerleader. Be quiet. What's going on? The devil says. Open the door and let me out. This isn't funny. Okay, I'll let you out, the cheerleader says, eventually. Not just yet, you have to give me something first. You want me to give you something, the devil says. Okay, what? He rattles the knob, testing. I want a happy beginning, the cheerleader says. I want my friends to be happy too. I want to get along with my parents. I want a happy childhood. I want things to get better. I want them to keep getting better. I want you to be nice to me. I want to be famous. I don't know. Maybe I could be a child actor or win state-level spelling bees or even just cheer for winning teams. I want world peace, second chances. When I'm winning at poker, I don't want to have to put all that money back in the pot. I don't want to have to put my good cards back on top of the deck. One by one by... Starlight says, Sorry about that. My voice is getting scratchy. It's late. You should call back tomorrow night. Ed says, When can I call you? Stan and Andrew were friends. Good friends. It was like they were the same species. Ed hadn't seen Stan for a while, not for a long while, but Stan stopped him on the way down to the basement. This was earlier. Stan grabbed his arm and said, I miss him. I keep thinking if I'd gotten there sooner, if I'd said something. He liked you a lot, you know. He was sorry about what happened to your car. Stan stops talking and just stands there, looking at Ed. He looks like he's about to cry. It's not your fault, Ed said, but then he wondered why he'd said it. Whose fault was it? 
Susan says, You've got to stop calling me, Ed, okay? It's three in the morning. I was asleep, Ed. I was having the best dream. You're always waking me up in the middle of things. Please, just stop, okay? Ed doesn't say anything. He could stay there all night and just listen to Susan talk. What she's saying now is... But that's never going to happen, and you know it. Something bad happened, and it wasn't anyone's fault, but we're just never going to get past it. It killed us. We can't even talk about it. Ed says, I love you. Susan says, I love you. But it's not about love, Ed. It's about timing. It's too late, and it's always going to be too late. Maybe if we could go back and do everything differently, and I think about that all the time, but we can't. We don't know anybody with a time machine. How about this, Ed? Maybe you and your poker buddies can build one down in Pete's basement. All those stupid games, Ed. Why can't you build a time machine instead? Call me back when you've figured out how we can work this out, because I'm really stuck. Or don't call me back. Goodbye, Ed. Go get some sleep. I'm hanging up the phone now. Susan hangs up the phone. Ed imagines her going down to the kitchen to microwave a glass of milk. She'll sit in the kitchen and drink her milk and wait for him to call her back. He lies in bed up in the orchard house. He's got both bedroom doors open and a night breeze comes in through that door that doesn't go anywhere. He wishes he could get Susan to come see that door. The breeze smells like apples, which is what time must smell like, Ed thinks. There's an alarm clock on the floor beside his bed. The hands and numbers glow green in the dark, and he'll wait five minutes, and then he'll call Susan. Five minutes, then he'll call her back. The hands aren't moving, but he can wait. Thank you for listening to First Person Drunk. You have just heard the final part of Kelly Link's short story, Lull. And, as always, any errors in the text have been brought to you by one of the three following me, Miles Tabor, Creative Commons, and Tequila. Crazy.